Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News today's Talk, News TNT. Welcome back to the second hour of the weekend's show for today. And I'm delighted in this hour, I'm going to introduce you to a brand new guest on TNT and perhaps his first time in front of a camera being interviewed. And his name is Richard Castles. I'll introduce him in just a moment. Uh, We're going to have a chat about his work as a journalist. He's worked for many different uh, organisations, The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald. He's written for The Canberra Times, The Spectator, and even The Big Issue. He's uh, also written the satirical section for The Age called Headlines You Won't See for 10 Years. And it is a delight to be able to introduce Richard. I'll bring him on now and then we'll have a quick chat and then we'll get into the discussion and warm him up. Richard, welcome to TNT Radio. Thank you, Jason. Good to meet you. Good to see you. Yeah, likewise. I I really appreciate your time. And uh, it's interesting that of all the stories that come out, it's something about quintessentially Australian, that somewhere along the line there'll be someone cross-pollinating the sport of cricket into new areas. And that's how I uh, how I discovered your work, Richard, which is kind of a bit embarrassing because you've written so many great things over the years, but uh, it was the cricket story that caught my attention. <laughs> it, it's really funny that you would write a story about the death of test cricket at a time when I've never seen such uproar over the retirement of an Australian cricket legend, David Warner, pr- considered by many to be the um, the number one of all codes uh, who's been able to play test cricket, one-day cricket and the modern T20 game and be a champion in all three, win obviously in the uh, the World Cup a few months ago, come back to Australia and uh, have the so-called fairy tale finish at his home ground, the SCG, where he scores a half century and uh, takes Australia to a third test victory over uh, a fairly competitive Pakistani side. Uh, and then of all things, almost like this hero, Australians just have this ability to do it. There he is attending his brother's wedding on a Friday in the Hunter Valley and being flown down by helicopter to land in the middle of the SCG pitch to try and help his uh, embattled Sydney Thunderside towards at least its second victory of the season. And unfortunately, despite his best efforts, that wasn't to be. And yet here we are talking about something that we seem to take very, very seriously in this country, the sport of cricket, when it doesn't seem to matter a whole lot, but it's the the, the way that you were able to tell the story and describe test cricket the way that you did was something very magical that uh, people, certainly purists, might think that is um, that is an important way to understand how it is that anyone can love a sport that goes for five days. And as you said, you can sit there for 30 minutes and nothing happening. And yet that is where all the meat and potatoes, so to speak, of this mental gymnastics that goes on in a game that can be played for five days is just so powerful. So if I can start by asking you, where did your love of cricket come from? Oh, well, Jason, I I mean, I'm just a pretty much another Australian who uh, played a lot of backyard cricket in the early days. We had a great concrete pitch down the side of the house and all the usual, um, you know, rules, six and out over the fence and uh, running from dogs when we when we did that and fours and uh, a catch into the swimming pool on the full, of course, was, was always a good one and all that sort of stuff. So we played with the tennis ball 
I'm waiting for them to start playing tennis with the cricket ball now to, you know, the Australian Open to, to you know, <laughs> see, how, see how it feels. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, cricket, um, look, I'm no, I'm no John Howard. I'm not a cricket tragic, as, uh, but I've always uh, loved test cricket. Probably the moment, the greatest moment. I had the privilege, uh, though, you know, people who know their cricket will know this day. There was a Boxing Day uh, 26th of December 1981 at the MCG against the Windies. And uh, the West Indies at that time were the absolute force of cricket, possibly the greatest team of all and, and many of the great players. Batsman Viv Richards, bowlers, um, Michael Holding, the, the, you know, everyone. And um, I had the privilege of being there on that Boxing Day, which is still, I think, recognised as one of the great days of Test cricket. Very tough conditions. Captain Kim Hughes came out and scored a, a century out of only a, not much, around 200, maybe not even that, uh, of the total great fighters' innings. So that was already a fantastic um, day. Great, great. Uh, knock and they sent the West Indies in with about half an hour left to play that day and the other great Dennis Lilly was running in I think he was touching the sight screen from one end <laughs> running those long runoffs and it was just captivating stuff I would have been you know oh, 12 13 years old great age to go to my first match first day of cricket and uh, Dennis Lilly at that stage was chasing the world record bowling um, long since surpassed, but it was about 300 and something wickets. And he, we, we had them at three for 10. Uh, and then there was one ball to go and Viv Richards came out and um, Dennis Lee needed one for the record. And on the last ball of the day, he got Viv Richards and he just kept running into the change room. The crowd went ballistic. He was equal world record, four for 10 against the Windies, you know, and it was one of the great days. And uh, dad, my dad who took us said, you know, we said, we've got to go again tomorrow to see Dennis Lee get his record <laughs> uh, the next day, which he let us. So, yeah. Look, obviously, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a grumpy. I think I had a bit of a grumpy old man rant um, <laughs> about Test cricket dying. We can talk about that. You know, obviously, it's very personal and you have your own memories and what you love and it's tied up with how old you are and where you're at and all sorts of things. But I still find Test cricket uh, captivating and, and um, you know, as, as I said, look, there is a lot of meat and potatoes going on that, you have to be a bit of an aficionado to to appreciate, and that doesn't mean nothing's going on. It just means nothing spectacular, and you know, like the the the, the modern twenty twenty games. Um, it's more a battle of wills and minds and strategy. And um, so, even if you're not even watching it, if you're aware of the state of the game, you you will find it interesting. You know, which is great because it means you can go off for an hour and still kind of be watching it <laughs> in well, your this, mind. This is, anyway, this is it, isn't it? Because cricket fanatics have always found ways of being updated with the with the scoreboard. I, I remember um, in the period in sort of the mid nineties when people were starting to get access to the internet at work. Some of my colleagues, when I was working for Optus, were very good at getting the score to just flick up at the bottom of their screen. And at that stage, that was state of the art. You might as well have been working for a space agency if you're able to. to 
ticket cricket yes. score coming through while yes. you're working and no one and you didn't have a yes. radio playing it was that yes. type of thing and so this is the culture uh that i guess that you know all countries have have cultures and sport i mean soccer the, perhaps the biggest sport in the world but you cross over to the united states and it's baseball and there's a sport that i don't quite appreciate the way that americans do but 162 games in a season seemingly there's you know there's a game on every night during that 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 season it's quite an incredible thing so when you compare this and it's we're not we're not as crazy as we seem here in australia to have this type of appreciation but um i, I want to go a little bit deeper into the story and also where you went with it when you compared it to the death of western civilization <laughs> and it was that uh, wonderful way that you're able to sort of you know make comparisons using a national sport is a wonderful way for new audiences to appreciate what you may see that others aren't seeing and that's that's part of the beauty of your writing but if you don't mind i'm just going to read some of some of the article because you're you're a brilliant writer richard and people who oh. don't know you i'm encouraging to 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 go and uh, to search out your work but um you said test cricket is a game with a rich history that spectators bring packed with their sandwiches to every match at the start of play the image of a fresh green field with gentlemen in white lined up in the slips cordon is like viewing a timeless painting there is a direct line between the game being played before our eyes and an afternoon friendly on a village green in Surrey a hundred years ago. When we watch the bowler running in, we are watching all the bowlers running in. We are watching a continuation of history. That is beautiful writing, Richard. Um, oh. And it, it just, it, it says to me everything that I love about the game in a way that um, that's, uh, you can share with that common feeling. And I think that's why so many test cricket fanatics are upset about what's going on, as you reported, that South Africa decided to send a second-rate team to New Zealand and allow, well, their, their players are all signing up for these T20 contracts, for example, and letting the, uh, the pure game go to waste. It's an extraordinary turn of events. And and, uh, and that, of course, has triggered this great big discussion that we're seeing all around the place. That's not just here in Australia, but everyone's talking about it in the cricket mm. world around the world. Mm. Yes, <laughs> um, there's a there's a lot really to talk about there. Um, mm. uh, as I say, look, let, let me say for for starters, I, I do try to be careful. Uh, as I get older, as I said, it was a bit of a grumpy old man rant. Obviously, I love my test cricket, and when people are talking about it dying, I'm, you know, it, it gets a bit personal. Uh, as I said, I think I said in the piece, the death of test cricket has been predicted for a long time and has often been grossly exaggerated. And I don't think it's going to die anytime soon, to be honest. I, I don't think we're going to see it in the immediate future. And also, when we talk about Test cricket, there's um, you know, there's the dominant nations of, of Test cricket at the moment: India, England, and Australia. And there may be changes in who plays Test cricket at that competitive level. Um, the Ashes has been fantastic for, mm. for, for you know, the, the actual game um, of Test cricket uh, has not is is delivering as far as I can see. I've been stunned by the number of great series that we just get time and time again in, in, in against England and, and India, uh, that, you know, it's still delivering. And, look, the crowds are still, you know, the Ashes is, is huge. Um, the crowds were not overly disappointing against uh, with Pakistan. People in Australia, especially in Melbourne, they will still front, front up to sport. Um, it will... 
I suppose <laughs> sounding very philosophical, but I mean everything dies, everything changes, mm. Um, mm. and it may change form. It may become a slightly more uh, esoteric sort of oddity that old fuddy duddies like me will still uh, keep alive, and the, and the standard may drop uh, again. T- the standard of, of talent is still there without a doubt. Um, so there are still passionate cricketers um, who want to put test cricket f- first, I think, who know that it's the game that matters. It's test cricket. It's, it's, it's the real game. But, you know, it's going to be yeah, – it's hard to say no to the money being thrown around, isn't it, um, in, in India with the BBL. And I, I don't know who said it. I heard someone sort of talking about, look, put test cricket first. That's what you want to train the kids up there for, and the the BBL will be there. You know, <laughs> the, the the other cricket will be there for 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 the for the second you know the second tier and the third tier and the you know there's some players that I thought must have retired <laughs> ten or twenty years ago that I still see their names pop. Yeah, you know, Peter Siddle. <laughs> yes, yeah, quite a still, and still an effective player, still earning a good contract. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. and and good luck to him. What a fantastic bowler, and it's good to see these guys get rewarded. And as we know, cricketers were not paid handsomely. Test cricketers for a long time, they did it out of service, you know, service to the nation. Uh, it had, that's right. It it had to change. Um, so you know, on on reflection, a bit, I've I've got a bit philosophical, and I've kind of gone, oh, you know. Be careful. When we get old, we think everything that's of value to us is <laughs> dying. And, you know, mm. uh, I try to be open-minded. Look, I go to the one, I go to the T20 uh, from time to time. It, I enjoy it as an event with with family and and you know all the good stuff, the food. It's all there. I just don't seem to get many that are very good games. Um, they're often over. Sh- you know, it seems to be more about just partying and stuff and, and guys out there whacking the ball around. And I suppose, you know, when we're talking about civilization, and that's where I just went on my big old, you know, <laughs> this reflects the modern world, uh, where everything has to be entertaining at this very uh, immediate level all the time, spectacles and hitting six and fours and noise and loudness and, you know, um, I don't know. I hope there's still always going to be people who find test cricket, you know, who, who, who study it and learn it and there'll be a niche for people who appreciate something that's that's a bit uh, not quite as dramatic and in your face every minute. Yeah, um, indeed. Isn't it interesting that Paul Kelly, of course, wrote that beautiful song, Bradman, and he talks about how um, uh, the coloured and he doesn't go down there anymore, obviously, yet another uh, cricketing allegory from from the great songwriter. But it's that mm. same thing. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's just all of us are becoming old and grey and white <laughs> and whatever, and we're just uh, we're our own relics. Oh, but I think there's a bit more in, in the story that you wrote there, Richard. And um, the reason I say that, and and one thing I'll just bring up quickly before we we move on to part of the where the story goes, but when I was at university, I think uh, in the early nineties, I read a book by Ian Chappell called The Cutting Edge, and in that book, he proposed that one day cricket thirty years ago was in trouble back then. 
before T20 sure. was even thought about. And what he mm. proposed was two 25-over innings instead of one 50-over innings, technically making a one-day test match. And if you think about that in terms of today's T20 cricket, the idea that you would have two innings and perhaps what you do is you play it as a day-nighter, so the first innings of each side is playing in the daytime and the second innings is played after 6 or 7 o'clock at night under lights. So you have a very, very different situation where you share light, you share night, uh, and, of course, you have to play over two innings. It's a spectacular idea. And for mine, I always thought it would be the limited over 50 overmatch that would die before test cricket did and it seems that that really is the case now limited over cricket is very barely played at all except in these world cups it's it's an odd scenario there what do you think look i enjoyed the world cup i, th I thought the world cup was also very i thought as well 50 50 uh 50 over cricket was was on the way out. i i still feel like i see more close good interesting games again it's just sort of long enough where there's a, a story or some you know there's a, something evolves look i don't want to you know diss people that like their 2020 cricket as i said i think it's targeted a lot at, at children mm -hmm. and families and um uh <laughs> there's probably room for there's there's room for variety I guess, mm. but how 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 many varieties do you have, and how much do you do you keep changing it? And look, maybe I'm a bit again a bit eccentric. Americans are baffled by the idea that we could find a test a game fascinating that ends up with no result. Yes, <laughs> you know the sort of quirks of test cricket that I love. That that there may be situations in the game where the team says, you know what, it's better for us to to get out or declare now uh, based on the, the state of play. I mean, there's, it's not just uh, first past the post, you know, 50-50 is, is just who, who can hit the most runs at this particular time. And as we know, um, some of the great test matches have been ties and draws and no result. And I don't know, I guess we're talking about things the the deeper things about what sport can be um and uh yeah it's well that's, that's say, uh, sorry to cut you off here but that is really interesting especially when you consider the way that the commonwealth games were tossed to the wayside by daniel andrews citing money concerns that in a country that absolutely adores their sport and victoria probably the home of sport in australia that must have been a massive blow for victorians Mm, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I don't have much of a place for the Commonwealth Games personally anymore. I, 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 as a sort of old fuddy-duddy, maybe I should, but uh, I think the Commonwealth Games is, is I don't know what it, what it really means anymore and um, uh, no one quite seems to know whether they want it or not or, you know, right. um, and, and how proud are we really to get 4,000 med <laughs> medals <laughs> against countries with, you know, seven people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a fair point. Um, Richard, well, we're going to have to uh, take a break, but uh, before we go to the break, I just want to uh, sort of end the story on the cricket with this quote that you used. You said, a social critic, Os uh, Guinness, recently put in floral terms, we are in a cut flower civilization now. The roots have been cut and people are still relying on the flower 
but a flower in a vase will die. And that's, uh, I think it's a nice way to sort of wrap up that little story. But after the break, what I want to do is go into um, uh, reflect on the voice over last year in uh, in terms of how that went. And then later on, I want to talk about the um, the, the story you wrote about uh, the, the climate prize in relation to your father. It's it's a beautiful story that deserves to be told again here on, uh, on our platform. But we'll take that break now. You're watching and listening to Weekends on TNT. TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit um, because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Listen. Listen up! Now listen, we gotta talk. It's what we do best. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. And in this hour, I'm with guest Richard Castles. And we'll rest the uh, cricket just there for a moment. We could talk about it for hours. And both of us are frustrated cricket commentators one way or another. And maybe that's what we need to do in our spare time just to have some more fun. But Richard, last year was a very significant event in the referendum here in Australia. Now, the result was a 61-39 defeat nationwide. Were you shocked by that result or were you expecting something like that? Oh, um I think the realist in me always expected it to go down, to, to not, you know, it, everything pointed to a, a, a no. Uh, history and, uh, um, and, and the polls were showing that. Um, but, you know, <laughs> always uh, take those things with a grain of salt and things can change. But it finished pretty much around where I think maybe... I would have expected it to in a weird way, perhaps actually a little more in the no direct. I thought it might have actually been closer, to be honest, in the end. But I think it. the longer it went, I think it became pretty clear. People thought it, it stunk, <laughs> and a lot of people. 
Indeed. Look, I had a number of problems with it, but the biggest problem that I had with it, that it was a non-binding voice. I felt like that people were being taken for a ride and a lot of people didn't really consider the term non-binding at all. It was kind of like, hang on a second, there's a community of Australians that are going to have a special provision in the constitution. And therefore that's a good thing, even though there was the arguments, of course, that it was a form of, you know, reverse racism or racism itself. But the idea of non-binding really bugged me because it said, if what all of this money is spent on and all of these hopes that are built up, that if the government doesn't believe that it's in its best interests, it will just knock it on the head. And the case in point was that the day after, well, the Monday after the referendum, Jacinta Price walked into the Senate and requested a royal commission into Aboriginal uh, child sexual abuse and was knocked back, which is an extraordinary thing because you would have thought that would have been the most important or one of the most important things to discover this because, of course, in the leader. There were nurses calling into uh, mainstream radio stations explaining that they had seen the same strain of gonorrhea throughout a family, mother, father and children. And she said that can only mean one thing. Now, why would anyone knock back such a horrible situation and just pretend? And that's when I think we got a little bit of a glimpse that maybe this was a lot more virtue signalling and there was some other strange agenda behind the scenes. That's what bugged me. And I kind of think that I was, um, uh, well, I think I was supported by Jacinda Price's um, work on that Monday. What, we, what, what was it about the voice that you think people didn't really um, get with it? My, when I first heard about the, the voice, my first gut reaction was kind of what, what? No, you know, that there, was, there was something that immediately went against a principle for me uh, in, in terms of democracy and equality and, you know, whatever you want to say about uh, the, the flaws uh, on paper, you know, every human in a person in Australia is at some level equal and gets to have a say in government with, with our vote. And that's where I started from. So I was always a bit of, bit of an, a, a no, but I, I tried to approach it with a, with a very open mind and, and talk, you know, talk to people and try to think of my blind spots. You know, I think it's good to... You know, uh, think about what what maybe I'm missing here, and um, I, you know that was always going to be a big sell. Uh, Australia is still a pretty a a very conservative country. Um, a don't like change, but do believe in fairness. I think that's that is that's something in our civilization that I think is still there and needs to be you know, clung to fiercely. And unfortunately, perhaps this issue brought up something that unfortunately, you know, there, there, there's enormous amounts of tragedy and issues around uh, Indigenous, you know, the indig remote Indigenous people. And I think the fact that initially there was enormous amount of support and interest shows, showed the goodwill of people. And to me, that's not in question. I... I, I personally have never spoken to anyone who would have, who would want it any other way um, but there are principles uh, there are principles uh, uh, and you, you you start to play with those at your peril because once you start moving those little you know that's a principle that you can make a little small adjustment here but there was something it really, I think that the scale was also a big issue. What what the scale of this was it small or was it monumental? And depending on who 
the government was talking to, it was clear they had two very different answers. To Indigenous people, it was huge. To the rest of it, was, it was a minor adjustment. Mm. The cell was off the mark. It, there was never a clear message and never a clear... Uh, but, and the more it went, the more people asked questions, the more kind of confusing and doubts were raised. And then uh, about how it would work and what it meant, as you say, what's binding, where does this fit in, who, who, who gets to be... Uh, participate in this, you know, can, can someone jump in and just sort of have a proxy indi Indigenous person, you know, behind the scenes? It just, it, um, there, there was just something very off about it. But then the behaviour, I have to say it, of a lot of the yes campaigners really started to turn people off mm. because if they were, if the way they were uh, making their grand statements and, and shutting down any sort of reasoned debate was how the, the vo that voice panel was going to work in practice, then I wouldn't want anything to do with it. You know, yes, there's always power and gradations of power uh, in, in, in politics and it's a nasty business, but there, there was just something so uh, authoritarian about we, we will decide, <laughs> we will say what's right and wrong. Mm. Uh, and... The, the, the more I got, I, the more I, I, I didn't intend to um, become so actively involved. I, I campaigned and, uh, and uh, went to polling booths and talked to people and became quite involved in it uh, as a matter of principle. And I wrote about it uh, a couple of times and it, it took a toll. <laughs> it, it did take a toll. There was a lot of, as everyone knows, there was a lot of very, very uh, nasty stuff that, that came about and we don't. Yeah. had that's not a product i think we need <laughs> i no, suppose i i'm glad that you said that and, uh, and but i'm i'm sad that you experienced that as uh, as someone who's who's run as a political candidate in the past the last election in 2022 uh was something that i'd never seen before um certainly not in in campaigning as a, a lower house candidate for a minor party um, and I've told this story before, but my tyres were punctured more than seven times on my car during that campaign. I was best friends with the um, the local Jim's Tyres uh, rep who would come out and just text him and he'd be, yes, it's happened again, yeah, and he'd be out there. And I'd be furious and I'd be upset and whatever and just thinking, how is it that I'm just trying to do the best for my um, community here and, uh, mm. and this this nonsense mm. is going on? Um, and we, we worked out where it was coming from. It was coming from the, uh, the party that won government. Um, and I was very surprised that they considered be that much of a threat that they would play these dirty tricks um, and continue to do it. And on other occasions, I was being baited at polling booths by one of the staffers of, of a member of parliament. Absolutely shocking. I had to call in people to um, who knew and had a bit more experience to be able to mm. defuse the situation because it's really mm. easy to be provoked. And of course, what happens is that you actually see out of the corner of your eye people reaching for their pockets and pulling out their phones and hitting record. This is the type of um, gotcha politics that goes on. And whilst we encourage people to get involved with the political process. You don't wish this on anyone and nor should they have to put up with it. And I do hope that somewhere in the future, we're going to get to a, a situation that we can become a little bit more decent again and just accept the system as it is. But it seems that we are all in a boat now that we feel like that we're playing uh, for our lives here. And, and this might just circle back to when you talk about the collapse of Western civilization. What is it, do you think, that people are sensing that something is just not right anymore and that we're headed into directions and we don't have the control 
or at least the ability to be able to talk to people on a level that we can get and find common ground. Yes, well, there's there's, there's a lot there, and and um, wow, it, it, it's touching everything. Um, the usual suspects. I mean, we, the, the the digital age is what I think is changing a lot. The way we communicate. Um, <laughs> here I am talking to you on a camera, but every every new tech. Technology has has good and bad and can be used well or not. But you know we're starting to see um, uh, you know digital uh, adjustments, you know videos and stuff. Which, as you know, the, the the line between satire and reality is becoming harder to pick. And sometimes something is even when it's overtly satirical. Now, sometimes, as you know, sometimes people do things in case this satire. I can't tell anymore because mm. um, so you know the. I, I think the digital uh, transformation of, of the world is changing a big thing, but and somehow I think that's feeding into who we want to be, uh, who who we are, and and you know the identity politics again is what it's currently called something very tribal, very um, you know you are a, a collection of characteristics, most of which seem to be now. Uh, arbitrary things that you have no control over <laughs> uh me you know oh, this is how this is me this is how i was born this is what i look like this is what i am when that starts become becoming a, a term of abuse uh then you are clearly not engaging in a, in a in a respectful manner where you're really actually aware that you're talking to another person and i think there's something about the the way we're communicating again there there's good and there's bad but there's a lot of very quick uh judgments and formation you know forming of opinions based on who you are rather than real engage you know respectful engagement and uh I, th I think look the voice was a very emotive you know very very lots going on there in in terms of who that you know indigenous people to to jump to the to to that anyone sort of just asking questions or wanting to know more about it, therefore you are this. Mm. I think just shuts down uh, human connection and debate. Now, these are values that I hold. That's the other thing. The, you know, I, I for all its flaws or whatever, I I am the product of my culture and society, and these are values that I think have a lot of worth, and therefore therefore are worth fighting for you know at some point you do have to make some value judgment and say oh, this i think this is this is uh, these are good things and freedom of speech you know is a, a fundamental part of of western civilization and, and and its success um it's funny we're talking about the voice mm. everyone wants a voice <laughs> yes everyone wants to speak everyone wants to be heard and um yeah, there's this, there's some, it's very, as you said, what a time to be alive. There's, there's something, there's, there's something I didn't expect to see in my lifetime seems to be happening again in quite a heated fashion in lots of areas.
Indeed. And that presents, of course, um, the possibility or opportunity, which is a wonderful thing. Yes, we can be confronted with a world that's changing at a rate that we aren't familiar with. We can't seem to find common ground against a common enemy except to be divided uh, by, it seems, by someone above us, a dividing community. And the voice seemed to be one of those things that looked on the surface like it was a good thing. But when you think about it, it was representing something that would create further division. And that may well be where Australians just said, look, enough of the division here. We, we just can't keep going down, down this pathway. Um, and, and so it becomes quite uh, complicated, as you said, uh, in so many different ways that we're still trying to work out where we're coming from. And out of, when you come out the other side, when we go through the COVID era and we're finding out that so much that the mainstream told us, turns out that uh, it wasn't accurate in many different ways. But we're faced, faced now with the government pushing ahead with this misinformation laws. I was wondering how you feel about that in terms when you uh, juxtapose that with the idea of freedom of speech and being able to be heard and the era of the voice. Is this something that is untenable as well, that may well put extremely uh, a lot of pressure on, on this mm. current government, but also the previous government, who were the ones that kind of brought it out in the first place? Mm. It's, it's, it's frightening. It really is. It's, you know, incredible. It's Orwellian. Mm. <laughs> and um, we're a bit late. We're well after 1984, but you know, I've I've lived long enough now to to see this emerge. This this I think it's fear around the the control of um, you know into the internet and these social media feed and the influence it has. It has a, you know you can influence people all around the world. I don't again. It's a, to me it's a matter of of principle, and you should be free to speak and be wrong. Yes. <laughs> And to have someone tell you why you're wrong and to perhaps go, you know what, actually, I think you're right. I've changed my mind. Or, uh, you know, but the danger of who gets to decide what is what is misinformation, lies, or, or what is a different perspective or what is something that has every right to be talked about, I, you know, I find it really quite terrifying. There may be lines there around uh, absolutely, I'm, I'm not hate speech. Uh, the difference between hate speech and actual insight into violence. Um, I think we can be free to hate <laughs> people. <laughs> uh, everyone does, probably someone, mm. I don't know. Um, something that needs to be very, very carefully considered. And uh, yeah, I, I would be very wary. I'm very wary about the, the suggestions being made, uh, you know, uh, what what becomes misinformation could, could eventually be very uh, complicated. Yes, um, absolutely. And then when you think, when you go back to the hate speech scenario, that uh, when, you, when you look at one part of hate speech moving to incitement, but if you look at hate speech and go the other way, you're talking about criticism. Where does criticism get confused with hate speech and therefore something that is therefore removed from society? If you look at it just in practical terms, the idea during COVID that if you went to your doctor and you didn't agree with what the government told you to do and you asked for a second opinion, there were no second opinions, for example. Imagine when your doctor, you can't get a second opinion in that 
that sense because there's only one solution or one pathway. Mm. And of course, it's it's a very practical example that many people might go, yeah, you're right. Um, this is the one thing because one doctor told me this, another one told me that, and that's what worked for me. I, th- again, it's the practical aspects of uh, of this in in real time. What about if you go to a lawyer? I mean, the whole courtroom is fought over two mm-hmm. different competing cases. I mean, which one's misinformation in that sense? It's just, I mean, it, it's an mm. extraordinary scenario, isn't it? It really is Orwellian, as you said. And uh, and, and I, I thought that that was the warning. When I was a, a kid growing up in high school, reading that book and mm. talking to my mother about it, and, she, and, and, and we just thought it was always meant to be fiction. She did say that it was coming somewhere in the future. And you thought, hang on a second, if we all study this, it's impossible that this could even be the case. And yet, Richard, here we are. Yes, creeping, cunning, you know, and and the the words that are used are changed a bit, so you might not know quite notice what's happening. So be on your guard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there it is. Now, what we'll do is we'll take another break, and when we come back, what I wanted to talk to you about was another story that you wrote: how to become a climate pariah in ten easy steps, and the reference to your father. It's a beautiful story. We'll come back after the break, and we'll talk to Richard more about that. You're watching and listening to Weekends with Jason Alborn here on TNT. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. The Kids Cancer Project funds vital research into childhood cancers. And you fund the Kids Cancer Project. Funding research means giving children back their lives. And who knows what kids with cancer could grow up to do. The Kids Cancer Project. Survival starts with science. Donate now. The Kids Cancer Project. When you need to know what's going on around the world, stay with Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back. My guest this hour is Richard Castles, and we've covered all sorts of things from an Australian perspective. And of course, we started with the most important, that is test cricket, and then we moved into The Voice, and now we're going to go into climate change. Richard, you wrote an article, uh, How to Become a Climate Pariah in 10 Easy Steps, and it was a reference to your father. It's an incredible story, and I was hoping that you could retell it and how you arrived at step 10 and the conclusion and what you knew that perhaps the climate uh, zealots don't. (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh well um so where, where do i start uh, again a, a, an asterisk a caveat you know it's my father that i'm talking about who i got to know from a very early age in a personal relationship so you know all bias aside uh my uh dad was a lifelong public servant in canberra very very high up very senior figure in canberra 
for many years, served closely under many prime ministers of Australia from both sides of parliament and was respected on both, si both sides. He was about serving the, the government of the day and giving the best advice. Look, I, my dad, I believe, was a man of incredible... He, he was for, first and foremost a scholar and a librarian. He was quite academic in uh, knowledge and, and sharing knowledge and getting to the truth. He lived at the National Library in Canberra, um, had his own desk there. And um, anyway, he, but he, he was a lifelong, he was, he was an economist and a statistician. He was an Australian statistician for 10 years. Not everyone's cup of tea, but he loved numbers and our, our coffee table before the community, he used to write, he would have these pads and write down layers, num rows and rows of numbers and add them up on a calculator and stuff. Um, I'm giving you a long-winded introduction, but he, he was involved with the United Nations, in, you know, statistically and internationally. He was president of the International Statistics Association, very highly regarded. Um, and um, I've lost my train of thought there. <laughs> Sorry. He... Uh, yeah, he finished. He was Australian statistician for ten years. Mm -hmm. uh, his chief, his primary interest was all was mainly about uh, measurement of well-being and prom promoting well-being, and how we measure how you know wealthy and healthy a society is, and. Uh, you know, the more you dig into it, the more complicated it can be. What what makes you know? He was interested in what what's a good life and what what makes well being. So he did a lot of international cross uh, comparisons between countries and always approached things skeptically and open mindedly. You know, if, if someone said, uh, you know, Japan has a higher GDP, therefore, you know, they're they're, they're better have a better life. He'd sort of dig in a bit or whatever. And, and anyway, very analytical. Mm. Um, I'll get around to what we're talking about. So that was his primary interest. He wasn't a scientist, but uh, when the uh, climate um, IPCC started having their regular um, conferences and putting together their papers, he started. He'd, he'd done a lot with sort of questioning the uh, World Bank and a lot of the United Nations statistics about the wealth of different nations and, and you know, he, he was a good um, spotter of, of flawed statistics. You know, he could sniff them out a mile away. And he looked at the climate, uh, a lot of the climate data just from the, because it, it involved economics as well. As we know, the, the IPCC papers included economic data because projections about the growth of carbon emissions or, or whatever also was related to the economy performance of economies and stuff. And he found many, many flaws in in the the, the, the data and the theory, uh, the, the, the statistics. And, and not only that, some very um, poor uh, things in place to stop these things getting through. Really, some of it, even to a layman, was quite surprising. You, you, you look at it and just go, well, you know, there's no way uh, this is going to happen. So he, and so he he critiqued as a as a scholar, as an academic. He he tried to provide input where he was quite within his rights to do so. And and he he um, he wrote a couple of critiques with some other very high profile um, figures, particularly David Henderson, who was a chief economist at the um, OECD. You know, these are not 
nobodies, you know, they're sort of lifelong academics. And he kind of got sucked into the climate <laughs> debate uh, because uh, the then head of the IPCC at that time, Rachendra Pachauri, uh, criticised him and referred to him and uh, David Henderson as two so-called independents. This sort of, again, this sort of um, cutting questioning of their integrity as if they were sort of on the take or something immediately just it, and look for me I wrote this piece many years uh, you know after he died and it was a bit personal I think I did want to kind of you know you hurt, you 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 insulted my father in the playground and I, I want to point this out um and so he kind of got sucked into it a bit because he was like, well, what's going on here? You know, this is this United Nations uh, panel that you'd think would be wanting to draw from the best experts, both in science and, and as statisticians and economists, again, not wanting to hear different, you know, points of view. And Dad was very much about, look, you, you move along and maybe you, with the, through this um, clash of arguments, hopefully you do arrive at something closer to the to, to the truth of how things are, good sensible additions. But it again, it's become such a polarized political, you know, thing. So he he kind of got sucked into it, and he, and, and um, he also then started showing interest in the science. And then the, his remaining days, he did do quite a bit uh, looking at the at the climate issue. Uh, and and this is a man I should point out. So he, he, a book of his writings was published in two thousand and fourteen. Of many of his great papers, uh, he died in two thousand and ten. He wrote an article that, uh, for Treasury in the early 1970s that referred to global warming. He was not ignorant. He, he was aware of these discussions long before it became mainstream, but it was almost just a footnote. Um, I'm on a rant again, but uh, <laughs> again... Um, so yes, he, he finished off. He was he actually was the uh, president of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences in his sort of late, later years, and he maintained a big interest in the in not in, in mainly in the statistical and economic side of the climate change projections and the debate around you know what was happening and stuff. And um, but he became so attacked and so, so like I said he he, he he became a pariah um look he was a skeptic he would I wouldn't call him intentionally contrarian but he liked to you know if you had an idea he'd, he'd make sure you were what, what ground are you standing on you know let's challenge this let's question this and I think that's again a very healthy place to come from and again something in our tradition that I worry is perhaps very quickly being eroded uh, and lost. Um, thank this you for this, giving me. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but no, but thank you. And I, I really appreciate it because it's these important stories that just get lost in the system. I, I was wondering if, if your dad was um, 35 years younger today and in the prime of his life today in today's environment, today's climate, how do you think he might react to the way the world is now run? I think he would be uh, possibly turning in his grave. <laughs> As we speak right now, yeah. I think I think he thought standards in a lot of areas were dropping. And again, to get back to what we were talking about the cricket, I always try to be careful. Am I just be, you know has the world changed or have I changed? Yes. You know what what's the this is why we have scholarship and and he was rigorous, 
but mm. he was concerned about standards dropping in in various areas and I, I i think he would be quite stunned at where we've got so quickly after in these last few years the, the world today indeed now um We've only got a, a, about five minutes left, and I just wanted to uh, to pivot and perhaps just uh, frame this this brief discussion. But this year is an important a year of elections around mm. the world. We've got Indian elections uh, in April, May. We've got Russian elections in March. Uh, Canada goes off in October, US in uh, November, mm. and the UK might go early. And again, this year, Australia has to go next year. And of course, New Zealand went last year. So the five eyes nations are all going off. It looks like in virtually all um, in in all areas of the West, there may well be a change of government, and yet there seems to be stability in both Russia and India. But I was wondering about what your thoughts are, uh, perhaps, of the importance of uh, these elections this year on a global scale, and perhaps what you may see as as, as coming up. Hmm. Yes. Well, I think it's half the world's population are going to a, a, an election. Um, yeah, look, it's it's you know we've got the big one in America at the mm. end, and and that's going to be very very telling. <sighs> Who you may want to win may have consequences in reaction that could be frightening both ways. That's what's quite that's what's uh, very tense about the world today. Um, you know. Um, I'm lost for I'm sorry, I'm a bit lost for words. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it is such a powerful thing, right? Because um, if if Russia and India go off and Modi's return, Putin's return as expected, I mean, you just it's plain sailing. But the second half of the year, you've got Pierre Poiliev in Canada, who's 15 points ahead, and most people aren't even aware of who he is, but he's this young, beautifully spoken, intelligent man who seems to wipe the floor with everything that Trudeau's globalist approach is all about. He's just about just doing things out of common sense and being able to make things affordable for people. And so with mm. all of this grandstanding and, and, and the idea and thinking whether you believe in climate change or not and all these globalist things we heard in the news earlier that you've got Ted Ross from the WHO telling us we have to have a plant-based diet, goodness me, um, because he says so. I mean, the bloke um, is not a medical doctor. He completely got um, COVID wrong on so many different levels, doesn't know where it came from. Why are we taking our food advice now from this, um, from this guy? Mm. Uh, mm. And, and yet if we then see a US election and if Trump is returned, um, you would expect that the first thing he does is take them, the US out of the WHO, which Biden put them straight back into on his first day in office. Therefore, it means that the, the globalist sort of control these levers is in a whole lot of um, pain now because people are, are really wanting to reject them. And you kind of expect that what we saw in Argentina with Malay and perhaps Poiliev in Canada, uh, and, 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 and who knows what's going to happen. The UK is just completely off the planet at the moment. But with those changes, we are going to see, you would expect to see some really significant moves on mm. this big global stage and, and fractures that may well be for the better, not the worse. That's right. It, um, it, it could be, a, a, it's a, a landmark, potentially very di divisive. Um, you know, we, we don't, we just don't want to see ugly violence, but the world right now isn't doing so well yeah you know we're, we're in it um mm. there's some horrible things obviously going on so this idea that for instance sort of a, a you know trump coming back in is going to be the end of the world or, or you know i don't quite know what that 
means. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no geopolitical expert about conflict, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't pretend to be. Something very big and polarising, I think, is happening in, in, uh, in the world, um, all these competing forces. So it does become, everything becomes politically charged and that's the interesting thing. Something like climate science, which should be just politically neutral, does become aligned with other issues and other causes. You could sort of write a left-hand column around most issues and a right-hand column, which makes you how much of this is really based on uh, objectivity or how much is it about a view of, of the world and the future of what is becoming an increasingly globalised, you know, mixing pot of, of people and uh, cultures all around the world. And where, where do we, you know, where, where are we heading and where, where do we go? Um, I think there's more, there are a lot of people, I think, who are reacting to the globalist agenda a bit, you know, at the moment, who, who just, again, that instinct. <laughs> Yes, uh, we're losing something here. We're, we're we're handing over too much beyond our own neighbourhood and our sovereignty, and you know that pers personal level. And people like Donald Trump can. There's there's Donald Trump the person, and there's what Donald Trump is has come to represent a bit, and that's what a lot of people I think don't quite sometimes understand or, or so, see. Richard, we've run out of time. I'm going to have to say goodbye, but thank you. Yep. I really appreciate your time. That was a wonderful discussion. We'll have more after the news here on Weekends. Thank with you. Jason Albright.